The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I was thinking about uh, what to talk about coming here, and um, I think what I wanted to talk about are the four Brahma Viharas. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about them and how they relate to practice. Um, I'm sure many of you have heard many talks on the Brahma Viharas, but I hope to talk about it from a little bit of a different perspective. Uh, so if you can't hear me at any point, just raise your hand a little bit and I'll, I'll project a little bit more. Um, so in my teacher training at Sphere Rock, I had this great honor and privilege of sitting in on many retreats with teachers. Sort of the training is kind of sitting and observing uh, and shadowing teachers. And uh, I do this many, many weeks at a time, uh, even for the month-long retreats. And so I was reflecting as I was sitting in uh, recently on a retreat about the qualities of love and kindness and these qualities of the heart. And what I've seen over the last five years of my trainings are uh, people in different stages uh, on their spiritual path and um, opening and changing. And it seemed as if what I've noticed and even talking to other teachers that those that have these qualities of compassion and kindness and equanimity um, developed in them, strong, have somewhat of an easier time on the path a little bit. And so, um, so imagine, you know, we're all on this stream together, so you can kind of use the, um, you know, use the image of we're going down a river. And so some people are kind of just sailing down really comfortably, uh, Others are kind of capsizing over of a hole in the raft, and they're getting down the river, but it's a challenge. It's harder. Um, there's a, they're kind of uh, fixing their boat and not kind of, and other people are just kind of sailing along. Um, and it, it seems that those that have these qualities uh, of the heart developed a little bit stronger, they're able to meet the challenges um, that it takes to really persevere on this path. Uh, this is not an easy journey. You know, sometimes I think when people come to the Dharma, I think, oh, are you really hearing what the Buddha is saying? <laughs> are we really getting it? It's so uh, profound uh, in so many ways. So I kind of wanted to talk about these qualities a little bit. Um, so the four Brahma Viharas translates as the four heavenly abodes. Uh, so... The four Brahma Viharas represent the most beautiful and hopeful aspects of our human nature. They are mindfulness practices that protect the mind from falling into habitual patterns of reactivity which undermine our best interest. So they're also referred to as the mind-liberating practices. So they awaken powerful healing energies which brighten and lift the mind to increasing levels of clarity. As a result, the boundless states of loving-kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity manifest as forces of purification, transforming a turbulent heart into a refuge of calm, focused awareness. So they have the capacity to purify this mind. And so also I see different types of people uh, coming over the years to different centers and here and there. And you see people that have this great intellect, you know, this great capacity, you know. 
and uh, they can miss, uh, almost misunderstand that the teachings are really about wisdom, but also balancing the compassion and the metta. That it's just not about wisdom. You need to be balanced. So they, the two wings of awakening are compassion and wisdom. And you need both to fly. You know, you need to be able to see clearly. So this mindfulness practice that we just did for 45 minutes, we sit, we, we try to pay attention to our experience, we try to understand, oh, this is happening, that's happening. So we're actually doing mindfulness, we're cultivating the wisdom. Um, but I think extra attention is needed also to cultivate the qualities of the heart. I think it's um, incredibly important, and I think in some ways our society is a little bit out of balance. You know, there's this great value on the mind, you know. And it's funny, in Tibetan, uh, in the Tibetan culture, they, they laugh because the mind and the heart are one. You know, they look at the, the mind as here. It's not so much here. Sometimes in the West, it's like it's very almost a separate, a little bit disconnected. Um, recently, I heard this story at a conference. Uh, the Dalai Lama has um, an organization, many of you might have known, the Mind Life. Uh, institute where they're studying science and Buddhism and and so uh, some uh, teachers were in India recently and so they were doing more research on these monks and they came out with this new helmet you know with all these electrodes hanging off and and so they had this monk come out on the stage and there was they were presenting their information to 500 other monks and nuns and other lamas and all of them started hysterically laughing and so these you know Western scientists and teachers are like what so funny and they were saying you have all that set up for the 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 brain but that's not where the brain is is here <laughs> so you could you know and they're kind of like well we just spent you know a million dollars on this gadget here you know what do we do now but it was just funny and they thought ah oh, you know we were kind of off the mark a little bit here but that's okay that's okay so the Dalai Lama often says that when he travels around the world, he often says again and again, my religion is kindness. What is yours? What is yours? So he's not interested in propagating Buddhism all the time. That's important, but how are we using these teachings in our life? Are we kinder? You know, do we leave a Dharma talk maybe about emptiness and think, great, walk home and yell at our cat? Or, you know, how are we living? That's what interests me. What do we do with these teachings behind the scenes, so to speak? And the, behind the scenes is also your own mind right here on the cushion. How is your mind? I think this is um, really important. So the Dalai Lama, he also writes, our need for love he writes this little paragraph and, uh, out of one of his books. He says, ultimately, the reason why love and compassion bring the greatest happiness is simply that our, our nature cherishes them above all else. He writes, the need for love lies at the very foundation of human existence. It results from the profound interdependence we all share with one another. However capable and skillful an individual may be, left alone, he or she really will not survive. However vigorous and independent one may feel during the most prosperous periods of life, when one is sick or very young or very old, one must depend on the support of others. So I think that that... Um, 
that's very important for, I think, us to reflect on, on our spiritual life. So the four Brahma Vihara, so starting with metta, this, this word, the Pali word, metta, which translates as loving kindness, the second of the heavenly abodes, uh, the second of these qualities is karuna, compassion. The third is uh, mudita, which is also sympathetic joy. And then the fourth is upeka, which is equanimity. So I just want to talk about each of them for a few moments to kind of get their flavor. And then maybe at the end, we'll just do, to close out our time here, we'll do a little bit of metta practice. So this idea of metta, um, this practice of metta is beautiful because our whole lives in some way, we look for love outside of ourselves, right? So in my life, in my childhood, I grew up in a very difficult situation. Actually, my father was a drug addict and we grew up in these apartments. I lived, I was born right on the border of Compton uh, in East Long Beach, California. So it was like everybody there was in a bad mood. I'll just put it like that. <laughs> it was not easy to grow up there. My father was very agitated all the time. Um, my mother was depressed. So I sort of grew up with this deprivation um, of love. I was looking for love all the time, you know. And so when I first came to this practice, I did a period of metta. I learned about metta. And really what was the revolution, what was the insight was, oh, it's coming from me. I generate metta. I generate love. I can sit here and turn on this light within myself and begin to radiate it. And this was so important because I, I stopped looking for everyone else. You know, we love it when somebody goes, I love you, I love you, I love you, you know, all that passion. Metta is not so much about uh, passion and relationship love. So in some ways, we're very pessimistic about love in our society, right? You know, people that seem to have a lot of love, we almost look at them like, calm down, relax, get grounded, you know. <laughs> we sort of want them to come down off that. We don't like that uh, so much. But often we misunderstand this quality. Love isn't about the romantic version that we see in movies. It's not about that. Metta is about a, a much bigger uh, type of love. It's a huge unconditional love. It's like the sun, it radiates on everyone. You know, it doesn't say, I like you, I like you, not you, maybe you, you know. That's our ha habitual way. That's the distorted view of love. Or if you give me what I want, then I'll love you. Metz is not that at all. It's uh, extremely unconditional. And it's one of the boundless states. It has no end to it. It's, uh, it just goes on and on and on and on. So why this quality is helpful in our meditation practice is because as we sit here on the cushion, we meet all these parts of ourselves that are so difficult, right? We meet our greed, we meet our hatred, we meet our delusion, we meet all the pain in the body. How do we respond to this? If we have this quality cultivated, we'll respond with more love and compassion. Our habitual, maybe, patterning is to shut it down. When we suffer, often we get angry at ourselves. Why are you upset about this again? Why are you reacting? 
you know, missing the part that there's something in there that needs to be held, that needs to be looked at. You know, so we're able to meet our mind with lots more love and receptivity. But we have to practice this. A little story that I like a lot. In the Bambemba tribe of South Africa, when a person acts irresponsibly or unjustly, he is placed in the center of the village, alone and unfettered. All work ceases, and every man, woman, and child in the village gathers in a large circle around the accused individual. Then each person in the tribe speaks to the accused one at a time, each recalling the good things the person in the center of the circle has done in his or her lifetime. Every incident, every experience that can be recalled with any detail and accuracy is recounted. All their positive attributes, good deeds, strengths, and kindnesses are recited carefully and at length. This tribal ceremony often lasts for several days. At the end, the tribal circle is broken. A joyous celebration takes place, and the person is symbolically and literally welcomed back into the tribe. So in some way, that's metta, right? Reminding ourselves of our beauty. You know, we would probably have less crime if we could do that for each other. Imagine this goes on days, remembering all the good things. That's metta. In some way, that's the heart of metta in action in community. So with this practice of metta, what we do is we return again and again to ourselves, remembering the goodness, remembering our kindness, remembering who we really are. So metta is uh, incredibly important. And the Buddha often could see what people needed, you know, with his omniscient mind. Um, He would see people, and they would say that he could see all their past lives, just looking at them, and he would know the perfect meditation. And he often gave metta as a practice. To people saying cultivate this quality cultivate this kind of heart and mind it will serve you in your path so also metta is an antidote to self-hatred which is so pervasive this kind of um, distorted view of the self so I do a lot of work with teenagers. I teach teen retreats, and I'll be teaching one over New Year's for six days for Spirit Rock Meditation Center. And this self-hatred is worrisome to me because I'll see these beautiful, radiant youth coming, right? They have everything. You know, their parents adore them. They have the best school. They go to, you know, they were... And all this self-hatred. I think, well, where is this coming from? And so we often do a lot of metta practice. So metta is an antidote, it's a cure to the distorted mind. To hate the self is a fundamental misperception. It's a painful uh, concept. So with metta, we learn to love ourselves again, meet ourselves again. So before I move on, I just want to show you, I mean read to you, One of my favorite poems by Derek Walcott that he really captures the essence of this, uh, this teaching about metta and love for self. 
So in this poem, he writes, it's called Love After Love. Some of you may have heard it. He says, the time will come when with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door and your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you've ignored for another, who knows you by heart. So take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror and sit and feast on your own life. So that's what Metta is attempting to do. You know, where we can look at ourselves in the mirror and offer, sit, eat. All of this is for you. You know, so we recognize our beauty. We recognize our Buddha nature. You know, often when people have this um, intense self-hatred, I say, well, if the Buddha was to see you sitting here, what, how would he view you? And they think, oh, he would view me as this great being. And I say, yeah, can you, we view ourselves that way. And it's not from the distorted, conceited way. It's, it's from a deeper love. So metta. We can cultivate this quality. We don't have to wait for it. We can intentionally incline the mind again and again and again. So just really quickly before I move on to the next one, some of the um, benefits of metta. So just to bribe you to do it a little bit more, here's some of the benefits they say <laughs> that are uh, in, uh, in the suttas. It says... Uh, some of these 11 qualities. They say, he who practices metta sleeps happily and sleeps immediately on closing the eyes. <laughs> so, so many sleep problems, right? Everyone's like, can't sleep. If metta could be a cure, that'd be great. As he goes to sleep with a loving heart, he or she will wake with a loving heart. They will not have bad dreams. Um, all the dreams will be pleasant. They will be dear to all human beings and loved by everyone. So this is true. People who have a lot of metta, my goodness, look how many people love this holiness. You know, it just exudes it. Uh, so often another person like that is Sylvia Bornstein, a teacher at Spirit Rock. I just taught a nine-day retreat with her. People love to love Sylvia. We're like uh, fighting for the opportunity. I'll get Sylvia's tea. I'll do this. Uh, someone had drove an hour to bring her special pillow, and she was so happy. Like, you know, we're all like trying to love. It's like she can't, we can't do it enough. There's just something about her that's so lovable. And she has this great heart of metta, you know. And so it's true. People do love you. Um, they say that they become dear to non-human beings as well, devas and celestial beings also. Uh, that's a benefit. Uh, they love you. Animals also are attracted. And um, they say the person who practices metta becomes immune from poison, fire, and weapons. <laughs> uh, metta also leads to concentration. Often people don't know that happiness is the cause of concentration. It's not struggle, it's not striving, it's joy. It's metta, it's love. That, when people do metta practice intensively, they fall into all kinds of uh, states of concentration and consciousness they'd never even known was there. It's almost like through the love, they're able to traverse through all the houses in the mansion 
you know, they're able to go there. So they said, um, you'll be protected by invisible deities. <laughs> Metta tends to beautify the facial expressions, so the face becomes beautiful and serene. They say the person dies peacefully, unconfused, and is reborn in a happy realm. So, sounds nice, yeah. So, um, so metta, that's the quality of kindness. Kindness to ourselves, kindness to others. So moving on, the other is compassion. And so sometimes I look at compassion as the other side of the coin from metta. So it's the, it's, how are we with suffering? Can we open to the suffering? I also translate compassion as care. I care about this suffering. I care about what's happening. So it's not about trying to end what's happening necessarily. It's about caring about it. So as we know, as we sit in meditation, all these deep states of sorrow arises. How are we with it? You know, we can't get rid of it, but we can be with it. And that's, I think, what compassion is saying. Author and lecturer Leo Buscalali once talked about a contest he was asked to judge. The purpose of the contest was to find the most caring child. The winner was a four-year-old child whose next-door neighbor was an elderly gentleman who had recently lost his wife. Upon seeing the man cry, the little boy went into the old gentleman's yard, climbed into his lap, and just sat there. When his, other, his mother asked him what he had said to the neighbor, the little boy said, Nothing. I just helped him cry. That is compassion. We can't remove suffering. It's the nature of life, but we can be with it. We can be with it. Compassion also understands that we're all in this together, that we're interconnected, you know, that we all are cut from the same cloth. And so we can begin to open to the difficulties in our life with some love, with care. So really quickly, I'm going to give you a two-minute, uh, about a one-minute, actually, compassion practice that I like to give people. Um, and it was really helpful, and it's something, it's helpful for people that I've shared it with, and it's something that I do all the time. So as you sit for a second, you can just stay right where you are and just close your eyes for just a moment. I'd like for you just to reflect on something that's, difficult for you in your life right now, a difficulty that's causing some kind of stress, some kind of stress, and we all have that. We all have that one thing. And as you sit and you reflect on it for a moment, I'd like for you to just gently hold your right hand out and open in your lap. And as you keep reflecting, I'd like for you to pick up your left hand and put it on top of your right hand and hold your right hand. And as you reflect on the situation, to say the words, I care about this situation. I care about this stress. I care about this suffering. 
Compassion is care. I just care about it. I can't, maybe it's not I can alleviate it. Things are as they are. But I can care about it. I can care about the person who's bearing this. So compassion is care. Also, I wanted to inspire you. I'm a huge animal lover, and so um, I really like dogs a lot. So I'd found this story called Faith, the Two-Legged Wonder Dog, and I wanted to share it with you. (laughs) So here's Faith. You can't see it from here, but she's a little puppy. I'll I'll just kind of read to this story. Um, The dog was born on Christmas Eve in the year 2002. He was born with three legs, two healthy hind legs, and one abnormal front leg, which needed to be amputated. He, of course, could not walk when he was born. His mother actually abandoned him. His first owner also did not think that he could survive. Therefore, he was thinking of putting him to sleep. By this time, his present owner, Jude Stringfellow, met him and wanted to take care of him. So could you imagine picking that dog out of a, you know, we always say, we want the perfect one, we want the breed, you know. So she picks him out. She was determined to teach and train this dog to walk by himself. Therefore, she called him Faith. In the beginning, she put Faith on a surfing board to let him feel the movement. Later, she used peanut butter on a spoon as a lure and reward for him to stand up and jump around. Even the other dog at home helped to encourage him to walk. Amazingly, only after six months, like a miracle, Faith learned to balance on his two hind legs and jump to move forward. After further training in the snow, he can now walk like a human being. Okay, so there's this kind of funny picture of him. <laughs> He's kind of walking along, but it gets funnier. <laughs> Faith loves to walk around. No matter where he goes, he just attracts all the people around him. He has now become famous on the international scene. He appeared in various newspapers and TV shows. There is even one book entitled With a Little Faith being published about him. He was even considered to appear in one of the Harry Potter movies. His present owner, Jude Stringfellow, has given up her teaching post and plans to take him around the world to preach that even without a perfect body, one can have a perfect soul. So there's a picture of him at a hospital with soldiers, right, who had that. And so, so she writes, in life there are always undesirable things. Perhaps we would feel better if we changed our point of view to see things from another direction. And so she writes, I hope this message will bring fresh new ways of thinking to everyone and that everyone can appreciate and be thankful for each beautiful day. And she said, faith is a continual demonstration of strength in life. And so he's all over, and that's her traveling with him. And can you imagine this little dog inspiring people, right, to those hospitals? And these, there's men. I looked on the website, and there was, he was at the VA hospital in Virginia, and these men were hugging this dog, crying, like, you understand, you know, soldiers who lost limbs. And um, how sweet, what a testament to use your life as compassion. You know, so whatever it is that you have that is your, your bear, your cross to bear, as they say, you can use that to, for good. 
You can use the difficulties in your own life to inspire. You know, you transform it as alchemy in this path, and then you use that. You use that to be an inspiration to the world. To me, that's also true compassion. So then moving on to the third is mudita. So mudita is sympathetic joy. So mudita is an interesting one. Mudita strengthens the the capacity to experience joy and happiness. They say it's likened to a flower at full bloom. Full bloom is is the ability to appreciate something as it's blooming and releasing the fragrance of its happiness. So basically, mudita is being happy for other people's happiness. You know, and that's hard, actually, if people um, really were honest about it. They say that this Brahma Vihara is the hardest to practice because it brings up jealousy. It's the near enemy, right? So your best friend calls you and gets a great job and you've been looking for two years, you know. <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, really? You got a great job? You know, so we can see how are we with other people are doing well, you know, and can we have joy in other people's joy? I have a friend that I have um, since I was a childhood friend who comes from, she already uh, came from kind of a very boisterous New York Italian family. Um, and so she has this habit of whenever Anyone calls her, but especially me because we're close. I call her with good news. She screams on the phone so loud. I have to usually put it down for a minute. And then, you know, she's so happy. You know, I'll call her with this great news. What a heart that is to be excited for other people's blessings. You know, if we took delight in everybody else's joy, we would be so much more joyful. You know, the Dalai Lama often says, just act like it happened to you. You know, and keep that frame of mind. You know, that we can delight in the joy in life. You know, a lot of, we're we're kind of pessimistic. You know, the news is never that many good stories anymore. It's kind of all the killings and all the, you know, everything that's going wrong. Um, So we can learn to delight in the joy that's around us, you know. And we delight in it because we know that life is impermanent. You know, so if somebody's having a moment of happiness, let's celebrate that because things do change. You know, we're all living on a house of cards. So uh, celebrating the joy in other people's life brings us so much more joy. It's almost like this generosity that we offer people, celebrating with them. And then the last quality is upeka, which is the equanimity. And so equanimity is a, is a beautiful balance. What it does is it, all the joys, they say the 10,000 sorrows and the 10,000 joys that you get in this human life. Equanimity sits in the middle and, and allows all, everything to come and go. So I remember as I've gotten older, I'm, and I can't wait till you know, I'm really old because I feel like on some level I see how the pendulum just doesn't swing as much anymore. You know, early on, when something would happen, I'd go crashing down over here, right? And then so high up over here when something good. And now it's like it's coming much more into balance. Like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, can I be with the difficulties? Yes, this is unpleasant. It's just unpleasant. Can I be with what's really beautiful? Oh, wow, look at this. This is beautiful. This too shall pass. You know, there's a sense of being able to ride out all the waves of life, you know, the Buddha said, you know, you'll be times you'll be wealthy, times you'll have nothing. 
You know, can I be excited when I have $2 in my checking account and when I have a lot? You know, how am I with that? In some way, that's the challenge, you know. So equanimity is that mind that's just balanced. Gil has so much equanimity. I, I cannot believe him. He is always that way with his family to, you know, committees at Spirit Rock to, you know. It's this incredible balance and ease. I'm so inspired by that, you know, to have that kind of mind in all different walks of life. You know, we walk in many worlds. Uh, many things happen. And how can we be? Can we be centered? So that equanimity is spacious balance. They say the practice of equanimity strengthens our capacity to be okay with life. Okay with life as it is. You know, not what we want. It's not what I wanted, but it's what I got. Okay, can I be here for it? You know, can I be here for it? They say that a lot of people um, come to spiritual practice for many different reasons. And um, early on in uh, spiritual life, I know some, myself and some of my friends, we came after reading books. And so there was this idea that when we came to meditation, we were going to get something like, oh, filled up with white light and maybe see other realms. And, and now I just laugh thinking about that. That's not the challenge. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, the challenge isn't sending someone to the moon. It's being right here on the planet in your life. You know, can that be the miracle? Uh, and sometimes this quality, I think, of equanimity helps us to be here as it is, you know, with a back pain and an itch and a restless mind, you know, and car problems. <laughs> you know, can we just be? This is it. This is the human experience. So these qualities, as you can see, are great resources for us. As you can already see just talking about them, they're great help to us on our path because we can remember them. We can remember them and we can practice them. We can incline the mind. Doing the metta practice is a beautiful way to incline the mind towards love. So why don't we do that? We have a few minutes left. Let's just take a couple of moments and we'll just, for those of you who um, don't know the metta practice, I'll just say a few things. There's a beautiful book by Sharon Salzberg about metta practice. I highly recommend it for everyone. Um, it's called Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art to Happiness. And it's a thin, it's not a long book at all, but it lays out the whole metta path. And for me, for a long time, it was my Bible. I would come back to it again and again and again. So for a couple moments, let's just do a little bit of metta just to have the spirit of this infuse us for this evening as we come to an end. And so as you sit for just a moment, just check in with your body, feeling the area around your heart, maybe just imagining that the breath is coming in and out through your heart area. Maybe just check in. How, how does this heart feel? Is it open or closed or tender or afraid? It's all okay. We just notice.
And as we sit, allow yourself now to bring up an image of yourself. So I'd like to teach meditation as a visualization and an offering. And it's taught many different ways, but this is just one. So as you sit here for a moment, try to imagine yourself looking at you. Here you are looking in the mirror, or if you have a favorite photo of yourself somewhere that you love, maybe on your refrigerator, of you smiling, getting an image of you as you sit and breathe, holding the image. And then with this meta practice, what we do is we make offerings to this one here. We make offerings, some people refer to them as affirmations, prayers. Typically there's three or four. So the first offering that we'll make to this image of ourselves is, may I be happy and peaceful. So holding the image, just offering it, you could say, may you be happy and peaceful. The second phrase I like is, may you be safe and protected. May you be safe and protected. Holding the image, we offer that. The third is, may I be healthy and strong. May I be healthy and strong in this body. And the fourth is, may I live with ease and well-being. May I live with ease and well-being. And so that's the metta practice. So sending those wishes to yourself, just for a moment, maybe bowing to yourself as we close out this period of metta or a hug, an inner bow or anything just to acknowledge. And to end our time here, I'd like to read you one of my favorite poems by Naomi Shihab. She's a Palestinian poet and her name of her poem is called Kindness. So she writes, before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness how you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. 
Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So thank you so much for your attention tonight. It was lovely to be here, sitting in Gil's seat. <laughs> feel like I snuck up on here. <laughs> but thank you all, and I hope that you have a beautiful evening. And um, if any time you want to come visit the East Bay Meditation Center, we're always there. We're another Aldana Meditation Center. Uh, so you can look us up online. We'll probably start sending more information over here, at least to have out on the tables. But, um, but thank you, and have a beautiful night. Uh, many blessings. Good luck with your meta practice. <laughs>